Raw Ag is your link to the food chain, and every episode will take you somewhere along that chain. From conception to consumption, you will hear from the cutting-edge players in Australian agriculture with industry news, unique views and presentations. We can all be better farmers, sustainable, regenerative and innovative. We can all be more informed and aware consumers. And Raw Ag is your next step in that direction. Brought to you by Ace Radio and Tamania Angus. I'm Kate Mead and today it is my honour to introduce you to host Tom Gubbins. Today I'm chatting to Sean Andrews. Sean is from Noorat in Western Victoria. The conversation in this episode is going to introduce you to Sean and his organisation Indigicate and more. He is a kind and passionate educator and with real world experiences in Indigenous injustice in global society. He has an important message. Welcome to the Raw Ag Podcast, Sean. And... Um, it's great to have you on. You know, we've shared a bit of a few chats over the years and uh, got to know each other pretty well. And can you tell us a bit about what who Sean is? Yeah, Tom. Thanks. It's uh, firstly, it's my pleasure to be here, and um, I love what you're doing with this podcast. And uh, I think it's a fantastic way to get a number of different messages across to to the community. Um, look, uh, the, to put it really simply. So I'm a Mananjali man on my dad's side and a Palawa man on my mum's side. Um, they're my two Indigenous countries. Uh, for some of the listeners who may not be aware, there's there's more than 350 Indigenous countries within Australia. Um, and they've been here, uh, well, for a very, very long time. And we often, when we talk about where we come from, we talk about our ancestral homes or what uh, the government likes to term as apical ancestors. Even though they're my family connections, I grew up, born in Northern Territory, and I grew up uh, in Nurat, which is not too far away from where you're located, Tom. Um, that's how we bounced off each other. Be pardon, mate. That, that's how we bounced off each other through Woody. Yeah, that's right. Through through the great uh, great man Craig Wood himself, <laughs> um, who is well, who is one of the best men at my wedding. So. Uh, I get a few good vet stories out of him, but absolutely that's how we bounced off. And I suppose like now in my life, I own a number of uh, businesses all focus on um, Indigenous uh, reconciliation and the promotion of Indigenous peoples and ending Indigenous disadvantage. But when, and, and sort of, they sort of vary from the education uh, company that I'm involved in called Indigicate, which I started, which I'll talk a little bit about to suppliers and suppliers medical and i think just to briefly touch on those ones suppliers is an indigenous 100 indigenous owned company that brings brands indigenous brands to market and we sort of got our breakthrough last year when um we just happened to have the exclusive rights to hand sanitizer in january last year in a factory in in asia and of course COVID hit and I had Woolworths call me in the middle of the night one night at about 11 o'clock, I think it was on a Saturday, saying, you know, well, you've got 120 tonnes of hand sanitizer, Sean. To be honest, Tom, I didn't know we had that much. <laughs> we were just was putting a couple timing. of pallets together, you know, yeah. for, to, our aim was to put some, some hand sanitizer and some other stuff to get into <clears throat> Aboriginal medical services and start promoting our own brands that we're developing. So in my mind, he says 120 tonnes, and I'm like, hold on, two pallets, that's not 120 tonnes. So I said, yeah, sure. And sure enough, I rang our, our factory straight away and they're like, yep, we've got it. But what a lot of people probably didn't know at the start of COVID was that the um, Americans and the, uh, and the Germans in particular were buying entire shipments, like the, the truck, the ship, all the PPE that was on it and just taking it as it drove past with cash. So the factory put us under a bit of pressure and said, look, you need... Uh, multiple millions of dollars to pay for this right now. So I rang Woolworths back and said, look, you've got to pay us within 24 hours, 48 hours. Not um, pretty hard sell, Tom, when you've got less than $1,000 in the business account at that time. <laughs> and um, 36 hours later, well, Woolworths had deposited just north of $7 million in our account. And three weeks later, we landed the first shipment of COVID supplies into the country as a small Indigenous business. And that hand sanitizer 
enabled Woolworths to keep its stores open and enabled Australians to continue to be able to go be fed and, and access grocery from supermarket. And um, that took off. So, you know, we've just released coffee into to Woolworths and a bunch of other brands we've got going on. So it's a rather successful business and enterprise now. And I'm the director of that company um, with three others as well. So that keeps me very busy. And then back to how you and I met through the company Indigicate, which I suppose to sort of sum it up, the idea of Indigicate was I wanted to create a program that would end Indigenous, end indigenous disadvantage in this country. Because the reality is that it's just gone on for too long. And the best way I could see us doing that, Tom, was, well, let's focus on educating non-Indigenous people to begin with, because my greatest challenge is that people don't understand us as Indigenous people. So they don't understand us, then how they're ever going to really work with us. And um, started building a program around outdoor education, taking kids out on country, doing school camps, because it was such an easy way to get into schools. And part of that was... I had this real, um, having grown up on farms and, and around farms my whole life, had this real idea in my mind that we needed to connect farmers and schools together and we need to do it through an Indigenous pedagogy or an Indigenous management system to sort of strengthen the connection between farmers, schools and Indigenous people and also show young people where their food comes from. Doing that using that model, was um, that's how we met, I suppose. Yeah, Sean, one of the amazing things that I got out of that was uh, we had a, um, you brought a group of students to us um, from, you know, in a, in a Melbourne, and I've got to say they were sheltered, you, you know. Um, they were sheltered from the issues that you, you were having with society, and they were also sheltered from the issues that uh, farmers were having in society. You know, I, I'd never been, I was asked by one of the students how I can possibly come to work and in the morning knowing that my cows were going to be murdered and um when that when that when a student said that to me that was something that really uh hit home to how you know the, the how we were sort of uh you know obviously completely different issues but the the same gulf in information was causing new strife that was causing farmer strife it's exactly right i think um i as you know with me tom i I'm not backwards at coming forwards. And I thought the best way to introduce these sheltered, and these are kids from a Jewish school. So a lot of cultural differences um, to to traditional Australia, I suppose. Not so much to Indigenous people, but that's a different story. But uh, not being backwards and coming forwards, I thought, why not take them? And this is where Woody got involved. Why not take them to their first ever experience would be Woody preg testing uh, cows. And the the shock of that, um, experience was really uh, almost too much for some of those kids. But what it enabled us to do then was to come back from that shock to start talking about real issues around food and food management and land management and to try and get them to connect with, in the same way that we try and get people to connect with Indigenous Australians, you've got to actually sit down and speak with the people who are doing the job. You've got to be around them in order to understand them. And that for young people to get out and get out on a farm and see your farm, for example, and the exciting things, just to be hanging out around with your team that was there, Tom, and how excited they were to talk about all the different things they were doing. It really sparked their interest into, hold on. And and I think we also visited Con Glennon um, with that particular school out in the dairy farm. And they came out of it after meeting you guys and they were like, farmers aren't stupid. I'm like, well, no. They run multi-million dollar businesses. They they can't afford to be stupid. Like this whole um, stereotype is unfair. And I can relate to that because when you think about Indigenous people, Tom, how many stereotypes do we have that people just make up because they heard someone say it down at the pub or someone over the radio and they don't actually really know Indigenous people? It's the same thing. And I thought in order to use the model that we were using to, I suppose, fix the problems within Australia around um, indigenous and non-indigenous people it's the same model to use with farms and it was, it was super successful and unfortunately COVID slowed us down a little bit but when we get out of this I'm hoping to be able to really drive a program with farmers um, around the state of Victoria and across Australia to bring this on country indigenous slash farm experience which would be really powerful 
Yeah, well, as I said, you know, that connects that three-way triangle that you created was uh, a light bulb moment for me and for people in our team also had that same spark. And uh, thank you for that because you brought it to us. Um, and you brought it to those kids that day too. There's no doubt about it. You're a very, very special educator. Um, so... Look, um, I just wanted to touch on, you know, we talked that day on our previous time about um, Robert uh, Dowling, the artist that painted um, the widow Mrs. Scales at Meringue, which is now hanging in the um, uh, Canberra Art Gallery. Um, it was it depicted uh, Mrs. Scales holding, uh, sitting on side saddle on her horse and Mr. Scales um, his horse saddled with uh, Jimmy, um, uh, an Indigenous Australian, wearing European clothes, which is meant to be the first ever painting. And I was singing the songs of this painting, how wonderful it was and things. And and uh, you gave me another point of view. Yeah, I, I did. I remember that quite clearly because I know the painting well. Um, and then I was probably a bit ignorant to knowing that it get, it sort of stemmed from where you guys were, but we were having that conversation and it's sort of interesting the different perspectives because from a, a non-Indigenous perspective, the concept of settling the land and going through and, and building these farms and um, this this whole idea around what they say is a noble savage, which is what they referred to our people as uh, and how the white fella essentially was able to tame the noble savage by dressing them in clothes and putting them on horses and, and taking them away from their savage existence. But I see it from the other way where I go, well, hold on. These people weren't living a savage existence. You've got extraordinary farming and agriculture and agriculture systems down at Budge Bim, um, down near uh, Portland and Haywood there and across the whole, whole state of uh, Victoria and the whole country. You've got these people who've been living on the land for tens of thousands of years. And I think when you when you talk to farmers in particular, you say, hey, how long could people actually survive out here without modern technology? Um, you know, and the people I now live with in the city, that they got no hope time at all. They, no, the no first hope. headache that come around <laughs> from, from a lack of water, they're, they're going to be in real trouble. It, you... You sort of ignore, in some ways, the absolute genius of Indigenous people, Indigenous culture. And what happened over time, and it's paintings like that that start this, and if, if you travel around the world and you see the great uh, museums of the world, these sorts of propaganda paintings exist everywhere. They paint people as saying, look how good we are and how well we've treated people. Yet we only have to travel 10 minutes down the road from where that painting was done to find massacre sites where um, the local settlers, which is a really passive term, settlers, because you can't, on one hand, say that all the people who are coming into the area were kind and good, and which seems to be the argument. Maybe you bring this up and say there were massacres. People always argue, it wasn't us, it wasn't our family. Yet I challenge them to really look at the homesteads around, say, the Western District, for example, where there's an enormous amount of massacres and challenge themselves to look at their history and go, well, hold on. Have we whitewashed the conversations around this history? You know, and what what have they got to lose? This is the other question I always bring up, and this is where you and I had a conversation. Tom, you've got nothing to lose from having this conversation. You weren't the person who did those massacres or painted that young boy on that horse to try and make it seem like we were being treated really, really well. Um, you exist in this world now where whether we like it or not, we've got to face these truths and we've got to actually start to work together on it. And the challenge with you and that day, and I was pretty blunt about it, was I don't see that painting as some sort of success of Australia. I see it as a failure. And I see it as this thing that we need to talk more about because we're now heading towards this real beautiful point of how do we make our farms and our land more sustainable? How do we get back to traditional um, and in a lot of ways, looking at traditional Indigenous management of land. Because if you look at the fire management and stuff like that, again, going on about the tens of thousands of years, these people manage the farming land. And, uh, you know, 
the way that it was done so well and so in tune with everything around them, farmers want that too. They're not out there trying to destroy their land or that um, their livelihoods now. And a part of understanding how we can make a better future is looking back to the past and going, hey, that's not a great painting. Uh, it's, it doesn't represent Indigenous people and the suffering that was going on. It's whitewashing the way it looks. And for, for some of the listeners, that's going to be a real hard thing to chew and they're going to sit there probably and say um, or think things that are really negative around that. What I want to ask them to do is to try and sit on our side of the fence with this and look at it and go, well, hold on. How would you feel if it was your families that were dispossessed? You know, we're talking my grandmother's generation. We're not talking 200 years ago, which would only be my grandmother's grandmother. So my grandmother spoke to the people who were still living on the land at the time. And then my grandmother went through the whole um, part of her life where she was too scared to take her kids to school, to take them into hospital to do things because they were taking her children. And no matter what you could think is the best thing for a person, everyone who listens to this podcast who's got children, just imagine the fear of that. And having two young girls myself, I don't think I've ever been as scared as I was in the hospital here in Melbourne when we we're giving birth to our first child around the fear that they might take our, our child away, as unrealistic as that, that is. And that all stems back to a conversation around a painting, which is stuff that we've got to unpack more and we've got to talk about more. And I, I'd love to be able to invite more farmers and, and more people in rural areas to do that and understand that um, these conversations aren't about a witch hunt. They're just about truth. Yeah, and I suppose extending on that, um, when you were a, a child, your mother gave you advice on how you should introduce yourself to people. Do you want to expand on that? Yeah, well, so we were told when we were little that we were we were far better off yeah, across Northern Territory Australia to tell one that we were Maori. Um, you get more accepted to be married than to be Aboriginal. My grandmother would get her thumb out and she'd put it down the table and say, they'll just push you down. And pretty hard thing to grapple with when you're a child because you don't really understand it. And then, you know, I grew up in Nurit and the people in Nurit have always been really lovely to me and probably don't even fully understand many of them, my Indigenous connection. And, you know, it makes it hard. You go to um, the football and you look at, the bloodbath of the Southwest, the Pern and Bears playing the Nurit football um, team in, uh, I can't remember, it was 88 or 89. And the racism and stuff that existed around that, because Pernham is this in, mostly Indigenous team, and the hatred and the words, and I might have been eight or nine years old, and I can remember that and hearing that. And I'm talking to my grandmother and my mother, and they're like, these are the reasons why you can't um, tell everyone you're Indigenous. But it didn't matter because kids still knew and my nickname at school became Boonga. Uh, and it was Boonga throughout my whole teenage years. And that is a real sort of derogatory term um, in many, many ways. Your really good friends could probably get away with it, but people that weren't as close to you couldn't. No, not, not for no one could. everyone who called me that across, anyone who played football with me you know, that would call me that for a long time. But eventually what happened with my really good friends out of Nurit, like um, uh, Tim McDonald and uh, Lee Dunn and, and Craig Wood and these people, they started to not, they started to really understand yeah. where it's coming from. And there was a period of years, Tom, where I really struggled to go back home because I'm over here fighting for better rights of not just Indigenous people, but all sorts of people, even, having, even fighting for bloody farmers in the city um, people who, yeah. you know, in the past called me names and, and being pretty nasty but still fighting for their rights and going home and then having people sit down at the, the Nurit pub or a pub around and go, oh, can you just, like, do you have to be Indigenous? Why, why do you have to do this? And I think those mates back in Nurit, they really drove home the be proud of who you are. And once they started to understand how hard this space is, um, and you've only got to look at, we put an ad up for our coffee on Facebook two weeks ago, and there's probably there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of positive comments, let's be clear on that. But there's probably 40 really racist comments on there too, and they still exist. So 
they stopped calling me Boomer and so did um, other people around. And I actually ended up getting a number of people sort of apologise over time because once they understood how bad that was. And when you're 16 or 15, people people say, oh, why didn't you stand up for yourself? Why didn't you say anything? Well, you're just worried about fitting in. You know, you're worried about, most people understand this, you're worried about going and getting a kick on a Saturday, whether you're playing junior or senior footy or whatever. Um, the nickname sort of, come secondary you just want to fit in and it yeah. probably in some ways drove me away from playing footy the racism that occurred in and around the sheds of football across the country um but i suppose that's that's a story for another time so what are the sort of things that you're doing um and what should we all be doing to uh we've just had uh, reconciliation week and what does that mean to you uh, I can imagine yeah. you've been very busy, and thanks for coming on to the podcast. But um, not too busy to you, and, and I think it's a really important voice for us to get out there around agriculture and, and to the, your audience. But I suppose to try and get people to understand reconciliation week. So there's this week of the year that's essentially about non-indigenous people finding a way to reconcile with indigenous people. Um, that's where the focus is, and every year. And, and also, almost it's every day too. Like I get up in the morning, Tom, I put the ABC radio on to listen to the news. And then I, I start looking through local news stuff as well. And because, you know, you've got to be across these things in in, um, in my world because people will bring up conversation. And every day there's a negative thing about Indigenous people. Uh, and it, it wears you down. And then you get to Reconciliation Week. And this year's a little bit different. Um, COVID probably in some ways saved me from needing to do a bunch of face-to-face things. But it's just relentless um, morning teas and conversations and questions around negative narratives of Indigenous people. Rather than very few people want to sit there and celebrate, you know, I've got one of the largest Indigenous companies uh, in Australia. We, we're, we're doing multiple million dollar sales deals at the moment, but people don't want to focus on the positive and and stuff like that. Like a comment this week um, was around uh, our coffee and people saying, oh, Indigenous people, that's where $31 billion Indigenous spend went. And um, it's nice to see the government handouts are helping you guys. If you didn't get them, where would you be? Well, you know, I grew that coffee business with my own money. And you sort of get to the end of it, you're having these conversations and you're hearing these people have these negative things and you sort of sit down and go, why can't you focus on the fact that people want Indigenous people to do well and get jobs and work hard. And when we do, they still smack us around for it. Yeah. And that's, that is a constant conversation during Reconciliation Week. I'd rather us have celebrations. And I'd say to um, your listeners in particular, if you want to have conversations around reconciliation, there's 360 odd days of the year we can do that. It doesn't have to be during Rec Week. No, if, if you're interested in sitting down and having conversations that we could bring young people onto your farm and involve in more Indigenous culture. Let's do it. Let's have that conversation at some stage, but let's not do it during Reconciliation Week. And when you say, what does reconciliation mean for me? Yeah. It means feeling safe, Tom. It means feeling really safe. And I, I don't feel safe in Australia. I don't feel safe all the time. And that's partly because... You can't sort of have the real conversations at times. People get so hurt around you're attacking them if you start talking about massacres. It's like, well, this is our reality. We're only talking about our reality. We only want to talk to you about it because as everyone knows and with mental health and the focus, and we're pushing this with with, with people in agriculture and, and rural more and more now is that idea you've got to talk. And all we're trying to do is talk through our, our pain and suffering that's occurred that's still with us so that we can get to the other end. And unfortunately, the good and bad about Reconciliation Week is it tries to push all that into one week. And you come out the other side of it just absolutely done. Yeah, you've, you said you feel unsafe, which is, you know, that's not pleasant. And to feel unsafe means that you fe- you're fearful and fear is the opposite of love. You know, love comes with mutual respect and understanding and that's what we're lacking. That's right, Tom. And I think I'll take um, you and, and I'll also bring Conglen into this. Uh, two people who I respect a lot and uh, really good operators of their farms, obviously. 
even though, and I've known Con my whole life, um, I still had fear going on to your, both your properties. Yeah. And, and that's even knowing the quality of people that I was coming in to, to see with those young people. And that fear doesn't always come from um, uh, that particular circumstance. It's historical. And if you think if your grandparents have grown up telling you your whole entire life that these particular people are bad or this is bad or in our case, they're, they're, they're just shattered because of how many of their family members have died and the poverty and the things that go on, you carry that with you. Yeah. And it's hard to switch that off at times. And I think why our program with you guys has been so successful for the young people and for you and for me um, and for Con and, and, and Michelle and their families out there, it was because it was built around that idea of, hey, we need more love um, and we need to sit down and understand each other better and we need to have honest conversations. And that's the key to it. And the more we can do that and the more people can sit down and go, hey, history is only being told in this country really of one side. And people forget that by the time the British got here to Australia, they were experts at colonising countries. Now you think about it, they spent 900 years colonising the Irish. They went through and they, they removed the Scottish clans. After they did that, they went through North America, colonising that brutally. And then they probably killed um, just over or under, they reckon, 100 million Indians in India through their whole process of, of taking that country. So the time they got here, they knew what they were doing. And they sent their brutal people out to deal with us. Um, and then they whitewashed that with, with stories about us that aren't true. And all we really want to do is sit down and have conversations that allow people to hear our side of the story. And then let these educated, smart people who are out there, they can make their own opinion, but they've got to hear both sides. And I think that's the bit that's always missing, Tom. And, and we can't get that table because it's not just my fear we're dealing with. We're also dealing with whitefellas' fear. That's right. You, you're talking this way and um, uh, and you've, we've spoken privately about this, obviously. You know, um, and I've got to say that I've, I've, from a reasonably privileged background, you know, I went to a private school. My father was a Western District property owner. Um, I, I, I feel some sort of guilt in this discussion I suppose um, and you've talked we've talked about this before but um, you know while I have all those um, sort of privileges in my background you on the other hand um, don't and, and it creates a completely different um, level of um, self-belief doesn't it? it certainly does and like, I'm lucky in a lot of ways to grow up in Nurat you know um, my mum Kim and, and dad Glenn were good role models Glenn always works and still works really, really hard. Um, you know, I think sometimes I never really worked out what a stock agent did. I reckon so I was about 25, if I'm to be honest. So I thought we just went out and rounded cows up. But um, he worked really, really hard. And I think that combined with the families in the, the local area who I got to admire because of the way that they, the parents, were there for their kids and they looked after them and they had jobs and they did these things probably was what enabled me to get to where I am now. So, you know, I'm the, I'm the first in my family to make it past year nine at school. Well, you've certainly done better than to, that. You've gone on from year nine, haven't you? <laughs> masters. Yeah, I certainly have. And, you know, um, cool leader in business uh, award last year, uh, a whole bunch of other and stuff like that, which is a real privilege now. But, from where I've come from, I've got um, members of my family, you know, who were, were shot by the police in, in my cousins and things like that. I've got um, more people buried or in jail essentially over the course of my life than, than, than the opposite. And probably in some ways, Nurat and being down there and um, quality people that exist there uh, were part of the reason why I am where I am now but I didn't have the same luxuries. And I look at my daughter now, Tom, and daughters, you know, we, we're really privileged. Um, you know, we, we joke because we were having, Lucy was having a brioche in the back of the Audi the other day. And I was like, imagine saying that to my grandmother. 
Well done. Like she would have <laughs> understood that. Um, I just want to have a um, chat about the land too. You know, um, I was born on a piece of a thousand acres sort of near uh, um, south of Colac and the Otways. Um, property called Pardue and uh, it's still very very familiar in my memory and does have uh, emotional contacts a sort of emotional meaning to me Um, I was recently describing it to someone and uh, I got a little bit emotional and um, and the crowd that I was talking to noticed it and a woman came up to me afterwards and said you know I noticed that you were um, emotional, you know, and my husband was always emotional about the property he was born on. Um, is is that the sort of connection to the land that you feel? Yeah, it's sort of an innate thing. Like I had that connection to Nurat and Mount Nurat. It's very special to me. Um, I really hope they don't uh, mess up um, the revegetation of that that place because it's going to be something special. They get that right. They also have that connection and. Uh, the academics of the world will talk about it in the sense that it's it's becomes part of your DNA. Um, and for my people, Mananjali, for example, is uh, the, that country is in between uh, the Gold Coast and Brisbane, uh, which is a pretty nice area um, in the world. But it's something that's really special to me, and I feel this sense of calmness whenever I go there. I think one of the things that gets lost, Tom, is Indigenous people do have this connection to country. And land because you know that whole land that they're on everything about it has a story and, and a place and you're literally walking on the bones of their ancestors that's how long they've been there in each of those countries so that connection is really deep now for part of my life i sort of thought i sort of sat in the fence and went well i get we've got this great connection but we could, sort of can't say that the white fellows don't have it either like Anyone who's spent, just like we were talking about now, but anyone who's spent time with uh, a farmer who's been in their property for a long time, they have that same connection and they have that feeling with their property. They know it. They know um, when the wind changes and the subtleties of that and the season. Like the old fellas uh, on the farms, I remember one day this joke with... Um, one of the old farmers from around Nurit, he was saying that, oh, those spiders over there have started doing this and this. That means we're, we're in the start of spring. And I'm like, yeah, but we've been in spring for like three weeks. And he goes, oh, the young fellas think that spring starts on the date that it starts in the calendar. You're mistaken sort of thing. And that's the same with the Indigenous way of thinking. It starts and moves around the animals in the land. I think probably the greatest form of reconciliation and healing that can occur between farmers and people in agriculture in Australia and Indigenous people is to have a cuppa, have that reconciliation and a cup conversation around their connection to their land. And if you've been on that property, or in your case, the property that you're on now um, has a deep history stretching back to Indigenous people uh, who lived there before they were dispossessed of their land, don't be scared to have that that conversation because that only increases the value of yours and their connection. And that's what we've got to do more of. So, the, you know, and you're aware of this, but there is a sort of a fear of um, bringing up that discussion. Um, a bit like, you know, uh, you do hear farmers say that, you know, if you, they find, if you find an Aboriginal artefact, you can't tell anyone because, you know, next minute... Um, you know, you'll be dis- you'll be redispossessed of your land, or and 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 it's yours, and all that sort of thing. But that's not something to be frightened of, is it? No, oh, it's just. I think we can blame John Howard for that when we were trying to get the first treaty movement going. They blew up this whole conversation that Indigenous people will come take your farm. Well, firstly, there's just not enough Indigenous people around to do it. And whilst we are interested in getting management of our land back, we're talking about the areas that are really sacred to us, and we're talking about rivers and waterways and stuff like that. Um, no one's going to come take your farm. Yeah, one I, I I talk about this all the time, Tom, and I find it fascinating and extraordinary. Part of my role with Indigicate was to have open sessions with adults and, and young people where they could ask me anything. And I'd always ask them a few questions. And one of the questions was, what is Australian culture? 
And I did just over 500 of those sessions in Australia. And for 493 sessions, not one person had mentioned uh, Indigenous people were Australian culture. On the 494th one, they did in my notes. The bizarre thing was I did 15 sessions overseas um, with leading teachers and, and young people. Every single one of them said Indigenous people was Australian culture or Aboriginal people. And you think about it, in Norway, they find a small part of one of their Viking ships and they build a bloody museum around it because they're so proud of their history and culture. And their history and culture isn't uh, any less brutal than ours. Like, they're the Vikings. Like, everybody knows what they got up to. And I think what we've got to do here in Australia is we've got to encourage people to go, hey, if you find and have, and, and there are, we know that there are, thousands, might be tens of thousands that farmers have found. There might be, people might have spearheads or whole spears or even um, I've heard stories of whole canoes being in people's sheds. It's time to bring that back and start that healing process. Indigenous people aren't going to come out and take your land. They're going to come out and have a look. They're going to go, oh, wow, and they're going to start to put the story together and um, they're going to probably want the spearhead and stuff like that um, to bring back to their people but it's such an important part of their healing. And I want to encourage farmers to be braver with that uh, and to step forward because that's what a modern Australia is going to look like. It's going to look like us working together. It's what our kids want. It's what our grandkids want. It's what primary school kids are talking about all the time now. So we've got to catch up to them and be braver. And I would suggest, and I'll put my hand up now, Tom, that if there are people out there who want to have that conversation, they've got things on their property and they want to do it and they want to have... Um, a one-on-one conversation, just just me and them, you can be there, they feel safe with that, then let's do it. If you found something in your property you want to talk about, let's do it. You know, let's save farmers from making the mistake where they're on the front page of the Herald Sun because they've destroyed something. Let's put them the other way around. We found this. We're giving it back. Come out and have a look at it. Now, who knows? Maybe some of those Indigenous people might have some great farming practices for you as well, some great agricultural practices that that might benefit your land. You never know. And you'd be stupid to not have a conversation with someone else around how they manage land and do things. You never know what you'll learn. So I want to open my arms up and wholeheartedly say that let's, let's step past our fear. Let's have that cuppa, have that walk around, uh, probably have a swim currently because of how wet it is, <laughs> and just open a conversation up, Tom. Sean, um, there's a uh, Australia Day is a dividing the community a, a lot in Australia. There's, it seems to go through both Indigenous and um, non-Indigenous people, dividing them on that point of view. Uh, can you explain to us from your perspective about Australia Day and what it means to you? Yeah, so with um, Survival Day, look, before I even go down this path, it I did a video around on Lake Condomission uh, about four or five years ago um, around, you know, the suffering that occurred there. And I said at the end of the video, you know, if this is where it began, would you celebrate it if this happened to your people? And um, somebody found my my home address and sent me a handwritten uh, death threat in the mail saying they would um, kill me and kill my family from Queensland. And that really shook me to the core around just how much hatred there is around this and lack of understanding. And I, I do a lot of talks on this every year. It's a really hard two weeks a year for me because it's just the, the press is relentless and you can't escape it. And I used to hide away for two, two weeks around that every year. And a few years ago, I started doing the um, MC of the Belgrave Survival Day and that was where a whole bunch of elders would come together and a whole bunch of non-Indigenous people. And it's a celebration, but also a talking about our survival. And that was really healing for me and really positive. And then I started to develop, I suppose, how do you get people to understand what this feels like? So I'm, I'm going to share with you the best way I can do this, Tom. I want you to imagine we grabbed every single person in Mortlake and around Mortlake. And we, we, we brought them out to the Oval and we'll, we're just hanging out. Everyone's there with their kids, their grandparents. 
And um, what's the date today? 10th of June. So it's the 10th of June. We're all there. Let's imagine it's not wet. Um, it's a nice sunny, sunny day. And all of a sudden, Mexico invades Australia. And Mexico come in and then they go into Mortlake and they're at the, the football ground there. And they come on in with their guns and, and they just start randomly shooting some people. And of course, Tom, people will get up and they'll try and defend their families and they get shot. Um, and they start beating anyone. Anyone who speaks English, they start beating. And so they start separating everyone there. And I want the people who are listening to think about this as if it's their family, their family there, their daughters, their sons, their wives, their grandparents. Anyone who's too old to work um, gets shot, wind up and shot. Anyone who's a woman who uh, is of the age of give children, they get taken away. All the men who can work get separated. And let's just say they grab um, one of your girls, Tom, um, early 20s, and they send her up to North Queensland and they force her to marry a Mexican. And anytime she speaks English, she gets beaten. As soon as she has kids, they take them from her. Now you fast forward 60 years and she's 80 years old and it's the 10th of June, 2081. And uh, 11 o'clock in the morning, up goes this flag. In the corner, has got the Mexican flag where the Union Jack used to be. Still keep the Southern Cross though. And everybody has tequilas, burritos and tacos. And they sing this young and free anthem in, uh, in, in Mexican and they celebrate New Mexico Day. I wonder whether your daughter would celebrate it. I wonder if she'd look around there and go, hey, hold on. What about us? What about our languages and cultures? Where do we fit in? That to me is the best way for me to describe how it feels every year. And in a modern Australia, what we're trying to achieve, it's not. this is not about changing the date to a new date straight away just to please Indigenous people. This is about us actually fixing the problems and coming together and creating a day where we can actually share it together. Not one build off pain and suffering, one build off unity and coming together. That's what we have to achieve. And I think a lot of people get all up and upset about Oh, changing a day, we'll lose a holiday. Like, guys, we got the highest incarceration rate of any population in the world, Indigenous people. We lose one person every two and a half weeks, one of our people die in the custody of the police. We've got the highest rates of youth suicide in the world. Oh, when will it stop? And people want to argue over a day, they want to sit there and go, don't take our day, don't take our day. Well, I'm saying stop taking our children. And if it changes a date so that you can have a holiday and another date to feel different and feel like you can celebrate your country, would it hurt you to do it with us? Would it, would it help if you could help us heal and help us fix these problems so we stop losing our kids? That's what we've got to focus on. And I, I sort of get sick of the conversation that goes around. And you know, people who want to sh shit stir about it, Tom, and just pick at it, those guys need to just disappear. Stop trying to make fun of other people's pain. I'm not going to do that to you, so don't do it to us. So as you can tell, Tom, I'm very passionate about 26th of January. Um, and I've got some solutions for it, but we just got to sit down and start talking about it yeah. and talking about solutions for it, not keep going on about why, why, why do we need to change a date? I think people can see why that needs to happen. Thank you, Sean. That was quite um, quite something to hear that. Thank you. Sorry, Tom, to relate it back to your family, but no, 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 no. no. I, I um, it's um, it's it's just a wonderful way of putting it together, and um, and I'm sure that the message was very clear for the listeners as it was for me. We're getting to the end of the podcast. We can't keep people... Their trips will start be ending by now in the car in the country of Victoria or wherever people are listening to it. So we need to... So they don't have to listen to your mistakes, masterpieces in the garage when they get home. <laughs> what are your mistakes? Gee, there's been a lot of mistakes. I think 
the biggest mistake I made in my life was not trusting and and fully investing in, in being comfortable being an Indigenous person and really caring too much about other people's opinions about who I actually am. You know, you've got your circle of people around you who you trust in, and you should keep close to. And for me, my biggest mistake was was trying to fight that. You know, it, it, it cost me 10 or 12 years of my adult life, really, um, of being happy and, and healthy and secure. That's my biggest mistake. Um, and the other mistake from a business point of view is just make sure you've got a good accountant and not, not just they're good if they – if you're smarter than them and you know more about business than them, then you you need someone way better. So that's my, my <laughs> bit of business advice. The masterpieces. You've obviously got a few of them. I do. I think probably for me, and we could talk about all the stories of success in business and life and um, how wonderful they feel getting a coffee brand into Woolworths in 14 weeks is quite extraordinary it's a whole bunch of things but the real last piece to me is just I suppose being comfortable in who I am being able to be comfortable being unhappy if I'm unhappy or sad and just the impact that has on my girls on not needing to be tough all the time not needing to be um, facing the world, pretending to be something I'm not. But my my children um, are my masterpiece in many ways, and they're young, and so they're a reflection of me. And I think the greatest achievement for me, Tom, is if I'm really upset about something, or if I'm sad, or if I need to cry, or if I'm just having a hard time, I don't fear picking up the phone, talking to people. I don't fear that anymore and I used to and I think that to me above all the other six if people talk about money success or yeah you know what I got an Audi it's a big step up from a 99 Honda HRV where I had to wire the car myself and that people see that sometimes that exterior uh, success and they go oh, that's successful that's that's that you got there no the success is is really you're comfortable being comfortable with yourself understanding how you feel and having that closeness of your family and your friends, having the values that align with them. And for me, being really comfortable with that and being able to look my girls in the eye every day and go, I'm fighting hard to make this country better for all of us. That's the masterpiece for me. Um, no amount of money could ever replace that. And having conversations with someone like you, Tom, around really big issues that are important to this country and in the healing to, you know, if I sat down with some people here in the city, they'd be like, what would a farmer know down in the Western District? And I'd be like, they know so much more than we ever give them credit for. And I think part of the masterpiece is being open enough to have these conversations as well. Mentors, Sean. Who are your um, mentors? Well, I used to think I didn't have any. I used to be too stubborn and think I could do it on my own, probably like all young people. Um, I've got some fantastic mentors. Uh, from a needing to see things from other people's perspectives. Um, Craig Wood and Ross McDonald in Nerd have always been really good at that for me in that mentor space. I've got fantastic business mentors um, in Adam Williams, uh, who is an Indigenous fellow who um, has worked in pharmaceuticals most of his life, but really at the high end, the C-suite level end and executive level end of business. He's really, really good for me. And then I've got an enormous amount of cultural mentors from Arnie Leanne through to Dion DeVal, through to young kids, just across the whole scope. Got these incredible mentors, people who keep me grounded because I'm a, I'm a dreamer. So I'm always, when we start talking about things and work and new ideas, I'm always off in the clouds going, let's do that. I'm not so good at being on the ground and all these people keep me grounded. Um, and probably my best mentor in, in this world who she doesn't help me with getting the business stuff done or the cultural stuff done or any of that is it's my wife Jane um, she mentors me on kindness 
and humility. She must be good at that because you've got that in spades. Yeah, I, I, I maybe I always did. You know, my mum, um, my my mum didn't grow up uh, in the best world, and I'm always amazed at how humble and, and beautiful mum is and how kind she is. And she got me to a point, and I think Jane has enabled me to get to the next one. So I'm really grateful for for all those people in my life who who mentor me, whether it's five minutes for footy or you know John Amos. Growing up, he was our teacher at school in Nurat. He was a great mentor. And there were so many people around uh, that area. My, my friends, Tim McDonald in particular, um, you know, even Matthew Fidge. And I never thought I could learn anything from a plumber. It's quite amazing what you can learn from those people when you sit down and have conversations. They're their mates and stuff. But I'm coming from an indigenous, real hard indigenous angle. And sometimes, like Matt and Tim would sit there and say, hey, you've got to change your language with this. If people here aren't speaking that language, you've got to, words are important. I remember Matthew Fitch saying to me one day, Word, you use language all the time. You need to be better with it at times. You're not listening. And you've got to have those hard conversations with the people who mentor you and, and your friends. Um, ones that can sometimes hurt because you then go, I'm working so hard. I'm doing so much time. And um, you've got to understand that you're not perfect and come back and, being humble and kind in that process is really important. I think the greatest bit of advice I ever got was if you can choose to be right or be kind, choose kindness every day of the week. Can't go wrong with it. Sean, you're an outstanding fella and uh, it's quite a privilege to be talking to you on the podcast today on Raw Ag and it's a privilege to know you as a human being. So thank you very much for coming in on the podcast and sharing your your wisdom with us today. Thank you, Sean. My pleasure, Tom. And I just say in my language, uh, Bokananga Jaram, Bokananga Maragam, Onya Tom. Thank you for being a really good friend and uh, a brother. And uh, I really appreciate this time just to be here and have a yarn with you and, and your audience. And thank you so much for that. It means a lot. If you're enjoying the Raw Ag podcast, make sure you rate and review on your favourite podcast app. 